Romans 12, 1, and we'll read down to verse 8. Having given the riches of the gospel, the apostle now says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is that will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, as we come to the end of yet another year, I imagine you are doing what I am doing and what most people are doing. We are looking back over this past year and we are wondering how we did compared to the year past. And then we look in the mirror and we think, not so well. I have not done so well this year. And, and then we start to sort of think through those areas of our life we want to do better. Every year we do this. The older we get, the more we do this. But one of the things that most people fail to do, and even most professing Christians fail to do, is to really think about what they are hoping to achieve and accomplish in the resolutions or the goals that they want to embrace for the year ahead. Um, many times, maybe arguably most times, they're driven by selfishness and pride. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a little section in his book, The Weight of Glory, on what he calls the greatest sin. And, and he says that, that there are people who can think that they are uh, growing in humility when in fact they're really just putting themselves down out of a sense of pride and comparing themselves with others and not really measuring up to others and, and then just living in self-pity. We're very complex creatures. God's given us consciences and minds that are very complex. And oftentimes, when, when we are seeking to improve ourselves or grow in our lives in improvement, we're not doing it in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. We're doing it in a way that is very self-focused. Um, I was reminded I was reminded of this by Tim Keller because this is so crucial to what we're going to look at this morning. Notice there in verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Keller says the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself, or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. Don't miss this. Keller's building on Lewis's argument in that essay. Um, true gospel-wrought humility 
and I might say growth in grace, is not thinking more of myself or less of myself, but thinking of myself less than I tend to be consumed with thinking about myself and how I'm faring and what's happening to me. Now, Paul is going to give us something very profound in these verses. He's going to give us the first application after that general call that we would present our bodies as living sacrifices, a people who are daily dying because of the mercies of God. He's going to now bring us down, and he's going to say, now where should, where should us presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, where should that begin to take form and shape? And the answer he gives is, among other believers in the same fellowship. That's where it should begin to take shape. Before Paul goes on and gives individual imperatives, he addresses uh, believers collectively. He addresses this congregation corporately, collectively. He uses that illustration of the body and everyone being members of the body and members of one another. And as he comes now to apply that very general principle that in all that we do, we have our minds renewed by the mercies of God, through the word of God, based on the work of the Christ of God, how then should we apply this? And it's very interesting that the very first thing that the Apostle Paul says is, don't think more highly of yourself but think with sober judgment. Now, I want us to consider here just two things this morning. Uh, first, Paul's going to call us to have a right view of ourselves, a right view of yourself, and then secondly, a right view of your gifts, a right view of yourself, and a right view of your gifts. Um, it, has been, it has been duly noted that um, no one... No one is immune to self-esteem and self-exaggeration and an inflated view of ourselves. Not one of us in this room is immune to having an inflated view of ourselves. Um, we usually fail to see that, and, and usually our spouse catches it when we're putting other people down, and they so helpfully point out areas of our life where we need sanctification because we're proud, and we like to say, well, if I was in charge, I'd do it this way, and if I did that, I'd do this, and I'd do this, and they should be doing this. That's an inflated view of self, and Paul says here to everyone among us not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has put this wonderfully. He says, the most beautiful sign that you have a right view of yourself in Christ is that by and large you are able to forget about yourself. You are able to forget about yourself. The first thing in conversations with others is not telling them about you or what you think or you want. Um... Ferguson says, self-forgetfulness sets you free to use your gifts for the glory of the Lord. As long as I'm absorbed with whether people notice my gifts, I'll never be free to use my gifts for their blessing. I think I've told you this. I have met many individuals throughout my pastoral ministry, and when I was a very young Christian, I had someone say to me, you know, 
I, I just, I know that I love serving for reputation. This person was not, was not um, saying that in humility or a sense of self-abasement. They, they were saying, I am driven by reputation. I had another individual come to me. I'll never forget this. They visited our church for the first time. And um, on that first day when I met this, this family at the door, the, the husband said to me, you know, I want to tell you everything I've done in my ministry and my life. I was like, all right. Good to meet you, too. Had just moved to the area first day, first time meeting them. I said, well, why don't, we, why don't we carve out some time to sit down and talk? And all of you know, I, I have the gift of gab. That's why I'm up here, in part. I didn't say a word for an hour and a half. I listened and listened and listened and listened. And at the end of our time, that individual said, so I guess what I'm really telling you is that I think my gifts are best used in teaching and administration in the church. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Those are my gifts too, teaching and administration. So what, what he was saying before he got to know a single person in the congregation or anything about the ministry or anything about anyone was I want to be out in front, I want to be seen, I want reputation, I want to be noticed. I want to be noticed. Paul understands that this is, uh, this is a perpetual problem in the hearts of fallen men and women, and yes, even in the hearts of the redeemed. Paul understands that the reason the apostle starts with these words as he understands it, and you almost get a sense that the apostle understands it because he knows his own heart. Notice the way that he introduces verse 3. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Now, that's not just, that's not just perfunctory language. It's not just uh, formal language in which Paul is just uh, using words to enter in on a subject. The apostle is saying, as an apostle, as one sent to you from God, as one who is writing inspired scripture, as one who is giving you God's will for you, and notice that's how he ends, verse 2, that we would, by the renewing of our mind, be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And here is the one God has appointed to make known that will to the people of God. Do you want to know the will of God? Do you want to know the will of God? If you do, you go to the apostolic word and where God has breathed it out. And Paul understands the role that he is going to play as an apostle, and yet the same one that is in a sense appealing to his apostolic authority is recognizing that anything that he has is merely by the grace of God. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, and he's including himself in this. This is marvelous. This is the apostle who will say elsewhere, by the grace of God, I labored more abundantly than all others. But it's the same apostle who will say shockingly that I am less than the least of all the saints. Nevertheless, grace was given to me. You see, Paul understands that the totality of his life is grace. He understands that anything that he has, anything that he is, is merely 
by the free and unmerited grace of God shown to him in Christ. And so in that sense, Paul is modeling for us how we can adopt to ourselves that same mindset. If, let me put it this way this morning. If the great apostle Paul could exhibit so much humility in bringing this word, you and I can certainly do the same. Because the Apostle Paul was arguably one of the greatest individuals in Christendom ever, bar none. He sacrificed more, he served more, he labored more, he preached more, he taught more, he revealed more, he poured himself out unto death, and yet he could say, by the grace of God, I say to everyone among you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Now, here's the danger. We can hear that, and we can say that's true. We shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And then we can miss the point, and we can start to abase ourselves sinfully in a way that is not pleasing to God. And we can start to say, oh, I'm nothing, I can't do anything, I'm nobody, and I'm just nothing all the time. And so instead of thinking, as Paul says here, notice, not to think more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment. It's been put this way, you can be intoxicated with yourself and your own high, inflated self, a sense of self-esteem, or you can be intoxicated with putting yourself, in a, putting yourself down in a demeaning way and in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord. And, and either that exalted self-esteem or that sinful self-abasement, um, neither of those mark out how a believer is to think sober-mindedly about himself or herself. Listen to this. Eric Alexander, this is beautiful. Eric Alexander says, true self-esteem comes from drawing near to the cross of Jesus Christ and finding what I am worth is what I am worth to the God who gave the blood of his only son for my salvation, and that is a great deal. That is where true self-esteem is born. You see, if, if, if we try to find self-esteem in how well we're raising our children, in how hard we're working in our vocations, in how well our bank account is doing, if we try to find our self-esteem in how, how much I'm exercising, how carefully I'm eating, how strict and regimented I am, then, then what we're actually doing is thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. If I'm finding my self-esteem in, man, I'm so glad I don't live and act like those people over there, then I have a higher, a higher view of myself than I ought to. And if I, if I think, oh, I'm nobody, I can do nothing, all those people out there should get the attention, they're up there and I'm down here, then I don't have a proper view of the self-esteem that God wants me to have. But when I look at the cross of Jesus and I understand the love of Christ and the dying work of the Savior for a sinner like me, but because he loved us, because he loved us, because in the councils of eternity, he said, I want to redeem them. I want to renew my image in them. I want to forgive them. I want to make them fruitful and useful in my kingdom. If I find my self-esteem in the blood of Christ and the love of Christ, that, that is the view that Paul wants us to have of thinking soberly with sober judgment about ourselves. Now listen, that's very easy to say. I'm here to tell you that. That's very easy to say. And it's very difficult to see that worked out in our lives. Um, the reason why many churches fall apart through division and schism 
is because the people that give lip service to that truth don't have that truth in their hearts. Um, James says, where do, where do divisions and schisms come from among you? You want things. You, you want to have them. You want them for your own pleasure. I mean, who do they think they are? I should have a little bit of that. That's, that's what our hearts are like by nature. And it doesn't help us not to acknowledge that. Paul is saying before he says any applications, before he makes a single specific application in the Christian life, he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment as God has given to each one a measure of grace. Now that means that the same gift of God in giving Christ and the same gift in God and Christ giving the Holy Spirit is the same gift that then brings the other gifts into the lives of those for whom Christ has died. The apostle is going to move on in verse 4, and he's going to use that great illustration that he loves so much about the church being like a body, an organic body. I've been thinking a lot this year about how much it would aid us if we thought about this congregation as one unified body of believers and each one being like limbs on that body and parts of that body needing one another, living together in organic unity with one another because we're united together to the same Christ. When people forget this, and they see that their Christian life is so far from what it could be or should be, they then start to either blame leaders in the church or they start to look for churches that can programatize the Christian life for them. And I want to say there's a danger here. There's a danger for us to miss the, the crucial role that each of us play in the same body and to look for programs and mechanistic things in the church or leadership to do for us what we're not doing out of our communion and union with Christ. Now, Paul is going to tell us more about this. He has already told us we're to have a right view of ourselves. Now we're to have a right view of the gifts God's given us. Notice verse 4, For as in one body we have many, many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Now, here the apostle is saying we have to have a right use, understanding not only of ourselves, but of the gifts God's given to us. Um, the one thing that each of these gifts has in common, and you've got to listen very carefully, the one thing that each of these subsequent gifts have in common is that none of them are for me. None of them are for me. They're all for others. If God gives someone a gift of teaching, it's for others. If God gives somebody a gift of genera generosity, it's for others. If God gives somebody a gift of administration, it's for the benefit of others. None of them are for me and my benefit. And the problem is when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, or we think more lowly of ourselves than we ought to, then we inevitably start to think whatever gift I have is for me and I should be noticed for it. But when we can honestly say 
the gifts that God has given me are for the other members of the body so that I can essentially go to them and say, listen, what God has for you, I am merely the messenger bringing it to you. And the gifts that he's given you for others, you are to say, what I have for you is what God wants to give you. These are gifts he wants to give you in the body, and I merely am the conduit of bringing that gift to you. Now think about how this would revolutionize every single individual in the church if everyone adopted the view that the gifts I have are not for me, but for others. You know, I have... I have had conversations with other ministers uh, in this denomination who have said things like, you know, I, we, my wife and I just really believe we should be in a big church. Really? I don't see that in the Bible. Like, that sounds very non-apostolic, honestly. Um, the same can be true for those that say, we just want a little church and we don't want the kingdom to grow. It's all about me and my gifts and my comfort, right? Um, the church is not a platform for me to use gifts for self-aggrandizement or comfort. The church is an organic body of believers who are united together because we're united to the same Christ who have been given different gifts to use in serving others, not in any way whatsoever using them for myself. Um, by the way, this is entirely countercultural to the way the world works in every sphere. The world will tell you humility. The world will tell you um, seeking the good of others rather than seeking what's good for you. Um, that that's weakness. That's weakness. That's not where greatness is. You know, where I, you know where I see this? I see it on the secular maxims placarded on the wall of the gym I go to. It's everywhere. It's in every business magazine, leadership books, um, fitness programs, diet programs. Do good for you, benefit you, take care of you, a little self-care for you all the time. And what Paul's saying is, listen, in the church, it is entirely countercultural. And all of these gifts are gifts for others. Now, he divides those gifts into three groups. He gives us, essentially, gifts of the ministry of the word, and then he gives us gifts of the ministry of love, and then he gives us gifts of the ministry of leadership. Notice that. He says, having gifts that differ, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, that's a gift of the word. If service in our serving, that's a gift of love. The one who teaches in his teaching, that's a ministry of the word. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, another ministry of the word. The one who contributes in generosity, that's a gift of love. The one who leads with zeal, that's a, that's a ministry of leadership. And the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, that's, that's a ministry of love. They're all ministries of word, love, or leadership. And you may say, okay, Nick, you've made it abundantly clear that if you have a ministry of teaching or preaching or exhorting, it's not about you, it's about others. And I can understand how a ministry of mercy can be about others and not for me. What about gifts of leadership? That sounds like there's a little bit for you in that. 
But when we remember that the leadership that the apostle is speaking about is the leadership that was supremely demonstrated by the Lord Jesus, who is the eternal, infinite Son of God, who gave up the glory that he had in all eternity with his Father and with the Spirit to humble himself, to make himself of no reputation, to take the lowest place, and to learn to lead by service to others, and to exemplify what it means to lead others through sacrificial service. This is the one who said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Not one time in Jesus' leadership did he ever say, well, if I was in charge, yet he was in charge of everything. All authority in heaven and on earth. And yet every second, every act of leadership demonstrated by the Lord Jesus was an act of service for the good of others, for the redemption of us, for the building up of others, for the humbling of us so that we would then take up the basin and the towel like him. Sinclair again says this, Christ does not give us gifts so that we may grow tall in front of others. Christ gives us gifts so that we may grow small in front of others. We are to grow small in front of others. Now, how do I know? How do I know what my gifts are? That was a big question in the 1980s in evangelicalism. Lots of books about spiritual gifts. And then it was mercy ministry, and then it was social justice, another trend down the line. But back in the 80s and early 90s, lots of books about how do I know what my spiritual gifts were, and some were helpful and some were very complicated. I think Paul would say very simply, in this list, as I see needs in the body, and the Lord is at work in me in a desire to bless others in the body and to serve them, not to serve myself, and to do good for them and to make them the best they can be and to build them up and to get down under them and to serve them, to help them, to assist them. As I do that, as you do that, we'll see the needs and we'll start doing what we see as the needs and we'll realize very quickly where we have gifts and where we do not. And as we start meeting those needs and entering in on pouring out for the good of members of the body what God has given us to give to them, the body will begin to benefit and grow and prosper. Now, listen, how do I know this? Because Paul says, look, each of us has different gifts, and so let's use them. If prophesying, prophesy. If teaching, teach. If generosity, give. In showing mercy, show mercy. I mean, think how unfitting it would be. I heard this analogy. Just think how unfitting it would be if we were walking down the Jericho Road and we saw this Samaritan, we saw this, this man bleeding and wounded on the side of the road, and, and we were like, great, I got to show this guy mercy. And we go over and we're like, got to be merciful because that's what the Lord wants for me. And we go over and we do for him what the Samaritan did for that bleeding Jew in the ditch. And, and then we leave and we're like, y'all, I'm so sorry I was late. I had to help this guy out on the road. He was bleeding out on the road. I mean, it cost me a lot. I had to make sure he was cared for. Listen, I know that sounds absurd, but so much that goes under the name of Christian service looks like that. It looks like that. 
Why didn't I get more recognition? Why do they get the recognition? He says, he who teaches in teaching, the one who is generous in contributions, generosity, the one who does mercy with cheerfulness, cheerfulness. There is a way in which we are to be using these gifts. Now, let me, let me close this out for us. It would be very easy for every one of us, including me, to leave here and say, okay, got that. I think that was a faithful exposition of this text, and then do nothing. And our lives are no different at the end of next year in this regard than they were in this year. And we're no more committed to the members of the body than we are right now. And it would be very easy to just say, you know, we're just going to keep going through the motions and wanting the church or leadership to live the Christian life for us. And Paul says, God will not allow us to do that. He has redeemed us by his mercy. He has purchased us with the blood of Christ. He has atoned for all our sins. He has justified us. He has broken the power of sin. He is sanctifying us. He has adopted us. He is going to glorify us. And now he says, live as living sacrifices. And he has given us gifts. Each one of us, if you're a true believer, has gifts that are meant to be used in joyful, sacrificial service to the members of the church. And that will start by looking around and saying, where is there a need for me to use the gifts God has given me? Um, if, you, if you believe you have a gift in teaching, we always need more middle school, high school, and elementary Sunday school teachers. If you believe that you have a gift in generosity, there's always a need to think about who in the congregation needs to be cared for in special ways, what seasons of life they're going through. How can we be a blessing? Now listen, I see many of you doing all of these things, and I, I want to encourage Church Creek at the end here, but I also know the propensity of our hearts is to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, or to think more lowly of ourselves than we ought to, and not to think of ourselves less than we ought to. And so as we go into 2024, I want to encourage you that we will collectively make it our goals to think of ourselves less in all of the Christian life and to think of others more and how we can use the gifts God gave us for them to build them up. And I'm going to say this this morning. I think Paul went here first because if this doesn't happen here, we have no reason to believe it's going to happen in any other sphere. If it doesn't start here, we have no reason to believe it's going to happen anywhere else. I hope that you'll be encouraged to find your self-esteem in the Lord Jesus, in what he did on the cross, in the fact that God has shown you enormous mercies in Christ, that you have every blessing in the heavenly places in him, and that God has given you gifts that you would use them to build up the members of the body of which you are a part. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we oftentimes do think more highly of ourselves than we ought to or think of ourselves in sinful and selfish ways more demeaningly and self-abasingly than we ought to. We pray, our God, that you would help us to think with sober judgment as you have given each one a measure of your grace and gifts. 
Lord, would you open our eyes to see those in the same body, and would you make us eager to use the gifts that you have given us, not for ourselves, not for reputation, not for attention or promotion, but for the blessing of the members of your body. We thank you for Church Creek Presbyterian. We pray that you would cause it to experience in this new year ahead a manifold multiplication of your blessings and your mercies in the ways in which each one of us seek to use the gifts that you have given us to bless and build up your people. Oh God, would you do this in us, among us, and through us for your glory and for the good of the members of this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.